wife and you listen to your wife, she's asking me to move the, move the pulpit over and stand beside it, right? So Sherry, this is for you. Sherry will be here later. She's uh, running, she's doing the School of Prophetic this afternoon, but um, so she's getting all of her stuff together for that. Um, so anyway, if you're here, we want to encourage you to share. Now I'm going to go behind it again. We want to encourage you to share the live, share the, share the Facebook, share the stream, uh, YouTube as well. We want you to uh, connect. We want you to share it because other people need to hear it. Don't you agree? It's called 132nd Evangelism. We're called to reach other people, aren't we? Right? You can do more evangelism in 30 seconds than most Christians do in a year just by hitting share. Just share it. Share it. It's amazing to me. We have people in Austin. We have people in England. We have people all over the place. And a lot of that is because other people like you share this, share the stream. So that's really cool. And we want to, uh, we've been doing uh, the month of the, the last three weeks, we've been talking a lot about fathers. And uh, last day, of course, was, or last week, of course, was Father's Day. And so today I want to talk to you about the, the heart of the Father. Not the heart of, our, of you, but the heart of our Heavenly Father. And there's no greater story in the scripture other than the parable of the lost son, prodigal son. Dickens and, and Emerson said this is the greatest story ever written. And so we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 15. And if you're looking for a reference, and it's in the 15th chapter of the book of Luke. And so what's going on here, I'm going to set it in context for you. The entire book of the, the, the entire 15th chapter of the book of Luke. Jesus is being followed by an entourage. Everywhere Jesus went, he had a crowd. I don't know if you know that or not. He, everywhere he went, he was like rock star. He would go to a new town, he would, and people, it would blow it up. Everywhere he went, he, he, was, he was around, and people would gather to him. You say, well, why is that? Because he's the desire of nations. He's what everybody is looking for, they just don't know it. And so the presence and the light of God would come into the world, and people would just be attracted to him, and they wouldn't even know why. They'd be drawn unto him. And so in the 15th chapter, one of the things that's happening is there's a group of people that are following him, and they're religious leaders. They're scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they're following him not to learn from him. They're following him to antagonize him and to accuse him. And so Jesus gathers this group of people to himself, and it says, and I'll just read you a little bit of the first, uh, the first verse. It says, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. The tax collectors and the riffraff were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, and they say, This one welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus spoke to them in parables. He's going to tell them parables. He's going to talk to them in parables. So he's got this audience around him. He's got tax collectors. So here's the setting. You can kind of see what's going on here. He's in the setting. And so you have these tax collectors. Who the tax collectors were in the scripture? The tax collectors were Jews who bought a franchise. They bought a Roman franchise. They paid Rome to become a tax collector. And Rome would give them a quota. So they'd say, you're responsible to collect $100,000 for Rome this year. And every dollar above $100,000, you get to keep. Right? So these, these tax collectors were extorters. They would extort, and they were literally robbing for their own, from their own people. The Jews considered them like the worst of the worst. Like you couldn't get any lower than a tax collector. You know, lepers were outcasts, but tax collectors were universally despised and hated. And so he's got the tax collectors around them, which to the religiously elite and the religiously correct, how could this man possibly be with tax collectors? And naturally, around tax collectors, which in that day would have basically been the mafia, 
you'd have some enforcers, right? So you'd have some riffraff because you're going to come and get taxes from people. Well, they're not just willingly going to give it. You're going to have to muscle it out of them. And so these tax collectors would usually have muscle around them. They'd have people around them to make sure they got what they deserve. So there's all this riffraff that's hanging around them. Then you had the prostitutes because these guys were extravagantly wealthy because they're making money off this. They're making a lot of money off this. And they're taking in all this cash. And so they got a lot of it. And so there's prostitutes. There's all sorts of licentious people all around this, this, the, the, that, that sort of gathering. You see this in the book of um, when he went, Jesus went to Matthew's house. It was the same thing. It was just a party. It was all these outcast people. People ask and they say, well, who is the one that gave up the most of the disciples? And I always tell them Matthew was the one that gave up the most. It wasn't Peter, James, and John. It was Matthew. Matthew gave it. He couldn't go back to his tax table. He gave up his tax table. He even changed his name. Matthew's a very interesting character to me because Matthew, was, he was born Levi but he called himself Matthew. Why did he do that? Because he wanted nothing to do with a hypocritic culture. He wanted nothing to do with a religious system that was hypocritical and condemning. And so what Levi did is he pulled out of the whole game. Levi changed his name to Matthew and he became a tax collector. More scripture, more Old Testament is quoted in the book of Matthew than any of the other gospels. You don't think Matthew knew his Bible? Matthew knew his Bible. And why did Matthew give it all up? Because the one he knew and had been looking for all his life appeared to him. Who, the one who he had lived this word and he had put this word in him and he looked at what this word was producing in the culture and how they were reflecting it. He said, I want nothing to do with it. But when he saw the truth and all of the scripture became illuminated to him, read Matthew. This was done that it would fulfill. This was done that it would fulfill. This was done that it would fulfill. Matthew was illuminating, prophetic, like crazy. He knew his Bible. But tax collectors tended to carry around them the riffraff. <laughs> and one of the ways in Jewish culture, in the Middle Eastern culture, if you ate with someone, they viewed that as an affirmation or an acceptance. And they, they were offended at that. They were offended because Jesus is eating with these people, right? And it was offending them. How dare he affirm this tax collector? How dare he affirm these prostitutes? How dare he affirm these riffraff? How dare he? And Jesus said, does this offend you? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, pass the mustard. <laughs> they didn't get it. So you have the riffraff that are around Jesus. And they all want to hear what he has to say because he accepted them. The religious leaders wouldn't even talk to him. They wouldn't even discuss anything with him. And then he has around him the Pharisees. So there's three, there's several groups. I'll just highlight two of them. You have the Pharisees and you have the, the, the lawyers or the scribes. The scribes were the theologians. They were the ones who got into the word and began to form the doctrine. They formed the rules. So the scribes formed the rules. And once they formed the rules, the Pharisees taught from the rules. And so you have the Pharisees and the scribes standing around Jesus and making sure that he keeps the rules. And they're always looking for some rule. If you read how Jesus interacted with them, they were always looking for some rule that he was breaking. Why does your master wash with unclean, eat with unclean hands? Why do your disciples eat on the Sabbath? Why do you heal on the Sabbath? They were always coming at him from the standpoint of the law and are you breaking rules? And Jesus is like, dude, I wrote the book, right? You know what I'm saying? I, I am the rule. 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You don't know. And you know what he said to them over and over again? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? He was provoking them. They were coming at him, telling him all this stuff like they knew more. And Jesus would say to them, have you not read? If you're a Pharisee, that is the worst thing somebody could tell you. Especially if you've been ordained a Pharisee. You've spent the time from the time you're five years old, right? Imagine, they were five years old and they were trained in the word of God. All the culture was. And only the most prolific ones advanced. And so here's these Pharisees who were basically the intelligentsia of their day. There was no one more intelligent. They could quote scripture like crazy, right? And so Jesus looks at him and goes, haven't you read? Right? That, that would be like, don't you know what you're doing? Clearly you don't, right? Are you not a doctor? Are you not a mechanic? Are you not, you know... It's, it's like, whatever it is. And so he tells them this, and it just completely, and so they were, he would, they were always being offended. There's another group called the Sadducees, which is a different, they're a different theological sect. And Jesus rebuked to them as you are ignorant of the word of God and its power, and the power of God. His rebuke to them is you have a lack of understanding. You don't understand what this really means. His rebuke to the Sadducees, the other religious sect, is you don't know the word of God, nor do you know the power of God. The Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. The Pharisees did. See, they believed the miracles. When Jesus would perform a miracle, they'd be like, well, show us another one. Show us another one. The Sadducees were indifferent. They believed they were, there was no miracles. Kind of like the church today. God doesn't heal. There are no miracles. There's no power. Sad, you see. It's very sad. You see, right? Pharisees were rule keepers. They were very fair, you see. You understand what they are? They are fair. And they are sad. That's the, that's, the, that's the angle. Then you have the keeper, then you have the, the, the theologians. So the Pharisees and, and the scribes are around Jesus. And their complaint was, this man is of the devil. And how do we know this? Because he affirms those who are of the devil. And what did Jesus say? The sick have no need of a physician. And these Pharisees espoused to know God. Their whole position was, we know God. And we represent him. And Jesus is like, oh, really? Well, let me tell you a story. In fact, let me tell you three stories. And so in the entire chapter of the book of Matthew, he tells them three stories. And each thing is about losses, recovery, and celebration. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And each one is a progression in value. Now, they didn't have any problem with the first two. The third one is the one they had a problem with. First two, oh, lose your sheep? Oh, of course. Sheep's a commodity. Of course we're going to go and find that sheep. That sheep's worth money. Of course we're going to do that. Got coin? Oh, somebody loses a coin? That's completely understandable. I'd tear my house apart, too, if I lost a coin. Perfectly understandable. A son? Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. If a son disrespected, dishonored, or broke tradition within the family, they were considered as dead. And they were considered to be forgotten. Harsh? Still goes on today. You were dead to me. I have a lady, a friend of ours from some years, and she converted. Her family were Orthodox Jews. And she converted to Christianity. And they completely disowned you. And her father was in the concentration camp. And when she came to Christ, she said, the last time I saw my father, he pulled up his sleeve and showed me his tattoo. And he said, you are as a Nazi to me. You no longer live. Because she gave her life to Jesus. She was not allowed to go to her brother's marriage, wedding, and she was forbidden from her mother's funeral. She's dead. 
So when you dishonor or break tradition, it's an honor culture, and it's about shame. If you shame the family, you are disowned and dishonored. And for them, for Jesus to tell them a parable about restoration in their mind, in their thinking, in their perception of God, you've broken the ultimate rule. You've shamed yourself, you've shamed your family, and you've shamed the Lord. You are completely forgotten. And so Jesus drives the truck right up into the driveway. <laughs> and he tells it to him. So here's the story. Luke chapter 15 and verse 11 it says, let me tell you some stories. So let me tell you about a man who had two sons. He had a younger one. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. And so he divided to him his livelihood. Not long after that. Everybody say, not long after that. Right? The younger son got it all together, and he set off for a distant country and, every, and squandered his wealth. And everybody say, with wild living. Right. So then he had spent everything. There arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs and swine. And he would have gladly eaten what the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, this is the key to the whole story. Everybody say it with me. He came to himself. When he came to himself. Exactly. When he came to himself. I lost my place. <laughs> but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to him, and I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. My sins are as high as the heavens, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he arose and went to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and fell upon his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Let the fatted calf be killed. And let us eat and let us have, everybody say, have joy. That's right. Let us eat and have joy, for my son who was lost has been found. Where was I? <laughs> I get so excited. But now his older son was in the field. So here's the first son comes back. Older son's coming up. And he says, and he drew near the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, and he said, hey, what's going on here? And the servant said, your brother's come back. And because he was received, and your father has received him safe and sound, your father is throwing a party. But he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, All these many years I have served you. I have never once transgressed you, your commandment at any time. And yet you have never given me anything, not even a young goat, that I might have a party with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes home, see the disownment, right? They're disowned, right? As soon as this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your wealth and your livelihood with harlots, you throw a party for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and everything that I have is yours. This is right that we should be merry and make glad. For your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he is found. Powerful story. The greatest stories ever written. Rembrandt wrote, put, painted pictures. All of these, there's, this narrative is flows through so many of our modern narratives, and Jesus tells it, right? Say it with me. It's about three perspectives, right? And it's about three cultures, this story reflects three different perspectives and three different cultures. The youngest one, well, he, what do you think he reflects? 
He reflects the world's culture, right? It's all about me. Gimme, gimme, gimme. My name is Jimmy. Everybody's out for what they can get. It's all about new lifestyles, right? It's about new sexuality. It's about new ideals. It's the 21st century. You know, they were saying that in the first century, right? This is what this guy is saying. It's all about this. Oh, it's, we, we don't want to live in the old. It's all about this. We need to move into the new. The problem is, is the pursuit is not, is the, this person is pursuing something without Jesus at the center. God's all into the new thing. As long as it's within his word, within his context, God's all into freedom and freedom of expression. As long as it's in his word, in his relationship, it's all good. And so this guy's pursuing all of these things, and at the core of it is rebellion. The culture of this world, the core problem, the core attitude of this world is rebellion. And rebellion says, you will tell me nothing. No one will tell me anything. I will do what I want. I will say what I want. I will go where I want. And if you don't like it, too bad. I'm accountable to no one, and I'm under no one's authority. <laughs> First rule that I want to say that, I'm, I feel like I'm supposed to say this, but... Uh, one of the lines of the satanic Bible is do, that, do what you will. That is the whole of the law. It's the whole root of Satanism is based on that. The whole, root, the whole root of our sin is based upon doing what we want apart from God. God is irrelevant. I do what I want. If I like it, I want it, and I take, then I take it. The selfish desire of the eye, the selfish desire of the flesh, and the arrogance in which to take it. That's the root of our problem. And here's this boy reflecting that very thing. He comes to his father, and what he says to his father is, he says, I wish you were dead. Yeah, see, this is an honor culture. It's something we don't understand in the West, but in the East, this still goes on, right? In India, this still goes on. In the Philippines, this still goes on. The father is the patriarch of the family, and he's to be respected and honored no matter what. And if you bring shame upon that household, the last thing you, would, you, you, the last thing you want is shame upon your household. That is horrific. See, in America, we just don't care. Right? We're, we're different. We don't, so it's hard for us sometimes to understand with this culture that Jesus is speaking from. And this is an honor culture. He comes to his father and he says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. The only way under the law they were to get their inheritance is if the father was dead. You mean nothing to me. Give me the goods. It's a Greek word he uses and says, give me the stuff. That's what he literally asked for. He didn't even ask for his inheritance. He just said, give me my stuff. Give me what belongs to me. Unthinkable. So if you can imagine Jesus is talking to Pharisees and he's talking to a culture that understood this, they would have been shocked at what he just said. They would have been blown back. How dare he talk to his father like that? How dare he speak such things? They would have been just completely wrecked. And Jesus is going to paint this kid out in their eyes as the worst of all sinners. The one guy that you would never bring back in your family. He's going to bring them that. So he's going to show them. He's going to show them what's going on. He's going to show them how God deals with this. So what happens? He gets his inheritance. He takes the money and runs, right? Not many days later. What's that mean? He takes his money and goes. Man, this dude's off. He's making up for lost time. He goes and gets himself a condo on South Beach, you know, maybe on Brickle, maybe over in Wynwood. He living large, looking good, feeling good, got the goods, party every night, women, boons, oons, 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 right? If you looked on his Facebook page, you'd pretty much know what was going on. Woo! Right? All in. He blew his trust fund. This is basically what happened. He spent his father's money, 
never earned his own. This is one of the attitudes of the world's cultures. You use people. You use people. The world will use you until you are useless. How many people I have watched in this church that have worked for corporations, and the corporation, when they're done with you, goodbye, right? They use you until you're useful, but when you are no longer useful to them, there's the door. And it's not so much as the how do you do. I've watched it time and again. That's the way of the world. There's no interconnection between you as a person or anything like that. It's the way it is. So pretty soon he's blown through his trust fund, never learned how to invest, completely ignorant. His dad was a really good businessman. He clearly didn't pay attention there. And now he's broke. He's at the pawn shop. He's bringing his flat screen. He's bringing his Xbox. It's that bad, okay? His car's for sale. He's at the Hialeah flea market trying to sell what little he has left. And pretty soon, he loses the condo. He's on the street, and the Bible really emphasizes this. He has no shoes. <laughs> he has no shoes. And that's, again, a cultural thing. If you didn't have shoes in that culture, you were considered a slave. Because the, non, the free men wore shoes. Slaves were shoeless. Right? Another little innuendo that he's speaking right at them. He had descended to the level of a slave. An heir who had descended to the level of a slave. How interesting. <laughs> he's abused. He's forsaken. He's about to walk into the Salvation Army. He's that guy. But before he does, he gets a job on the low end of the totem pole. And he becomes forsaken by his abused, forsaken, cast. He has nothing on his resume except entitled. It's the only thing that's on his... He couldn't get a job. He had no work experience. Trust fund baby, that would be on his beer. Let's see, what's your work experience? Uh, I know how to spend money. Um, trust fund baby. What have you really done with yourself? Well, I've lived an entitled life. That, that, that should get me somewhere. Yeah, it got him to feed the pigs. And he had nothing. And he's left to himself. And he comes to himself. He has a realization. I'm living like this, but my father hires people like me. My, I have people in my father's house that work that, that, that are like me, and my dad takes care of them. My dad supports them. My dad feeds them. My dad houses them. My dad's a good guy, and I'm an idiot. Hello? He came to himself. He realized his father was a blesser, and he was an idiot. He was an idiot. He had been living self-centered, self-focused, making selfish choices, and indulging himself. And he had partnered with a culture that has fallen. And any time you partner with a culture that has fallen, everybody say with me, start the clock. You will end up in the same spot. You will be there. It's inevitable. It might take you a year. We don't even know how long it took him. It might have took the dude five years. He probably had a lot of cash. Took a long time to burn through that much cash. My wife watches this princess show. I was watching it. I don't know how this is possible, but apparently it was possible. She watched these shows on these American princesses. I don't even know. Some, some show. She's some woman's show that, you know, I, you know, act like I'm paying attention to. But, you know, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. But she just wants me there to hold her hand while we're watching. So that's, I can do that. Right? And so this lady, this woman, one of these women, she was some heiress. I think she was the Woolworth heiress. And she was worth $200 million dollars. And she burned through all of it. I don't know how that's possible. $200 million? If you, the interest alone would make it difficult to burn through that, right? 
at 7%. It's like, what, $14 million a year in interest? Just in interest. 7%, is that right? I don't know, something like that. I'm not doing math on the weekend, so don't, you can, if you guys are mathematicians and you guys tell me later, but, you know, I'll figure that out on Monday. <laughs> he returns to his father. He recognizes himself. He goes back home, shoeless and shot out, but he goes home. He's shoeless, he's shot out, but he goes back, right? His father sees him and his father runs. The Bible uses the word compassion. It means pain in the heart or pain in the stomach. That's what it means. It means inward pain. And so he sees his son afar off, and his son probably looks like hell, right? He, he looks like skinny, ragtag, shoeless, walking down the road, and his father says, that's my son. And he feels it. And so his father rises and runs, which is, again, to that culture. He's speaking to this culture. We're like, oh, dad ran to me, man. You know, I mean, we do that. We run in little league games with our kids. Fathers, grown men in that culture didn't run. And the only time you'd see a grown man running is either they committed a crime or someone was chasing them. It's the only time a grown man ran. So when he says this to them, they're like, how the father ran, how undignified. Ah, now you're getting the picture of who the father is. It doesn't matter about dignity. Jesus hung openly on a cross for you. He hung naked for you. He shed blood. And you can't even share it on your Facebook wall. Nobody knows you're a Christian. Nobody? You want to keep that on the low? Christ hung openly for you. He became undignified because you matter. How much does Jesus matter to you? It's the question, Christian. How much does Jesus matter to you? You claim Christ, but you hide him at every turn. At every turn. Just the thought. The father lifted his, lifted his robe. He exposed his leg. Another act of shame. Jesus hung openly on a cross. Naked. Naked. He didn't have a loincloth on. The Romans stripped you naked. They were masochist. They delighted in torture. They loved it. They'd be like, yeah, look at that dude. Oh, man. Wow. Oh, I've never seen blood flow like that. Look at that. They'd be eating watching you die. Masochistic. Putting a bag over his face and punching him in the face, masochistic, enjoying the torture and the torment of others. He did it for you. What are you ashamed of? You ashamed of him? I got news. Jesus, 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 Jesus. I don't even use the word God. It's Jesus. You want to hear me talk about God? Jesus, Jesus, it's not the universal God that's tolerable and palatable for the culture. Gummy bears. Now, I'm going to give you 100 proof. His name is Jesus. And there's no shame in it. You know, I will not hide the one who died for me. I will confess him before men. Will you? Will you? What's your Facebook page look like? Does anybody know you're a Christian if they looked at your Facebook page? There's a shiny, happy people. Is it all about you and your successes? Or does your faith matter enough for you to show it to the world? Does Jesus matter enough for you to show it to the world? Oh, I don't know. Man, come on. Come on. Do you know how bold this culture is in their sin? Where sin abounds. Grace, we're supposed to, we, man, we should not even rise to that level. You know, and the church just goes, well, we don't want to hurt anybody. We don't want to offend anybody. God, oh, God loves you. No, his name is Jesus. I got another charged word for you. It's called repentance. There's another one. We don't say repentance in churches anymore, Pastor. We can't say that. 
Don't say sin. Don't say repentance. If you go to a church and you don't hear the word repentance, that's not the church to be at. If you go to a church and you don't hear the word sin, that's not the church to be at. If it's all shiny, happy people, it's itching ears. That's a church that the Lord prophesied of the last day that will not profess truth but denies the power thereof. Oh, but it's so comfortable, and there's so many people, and I never feel any. I just feel happy. Say with me, where there is no challenge, there is no change. You will never change in that environment because there is never any challenge. The Holy Spirit moves on sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's how the Holy Spirit moves in, our, in, in the life of the world. If we don't talk about sin, the Holy Spirit's mission is neutered because he ministers on the conviction of sin in order to bring them to righteousness and to reveal to them to deny this righteousness is to stand before God in judgment. <gasps> That's the gospel at its core to the unrighteous Christian. You may, not, you may not like it, but that's the way it is. That may not suit your fancy. That may not be the paradigm of the world, but that is the paradigm of this kingdom. You understand that? It's very, very important. In a, in a generation where the church is inundated, inundated, we have mixed ourselves with a culture. Mixed with a culture. Read Revelation. You should read. When you want to know where Jesus, when Jesus is looking at his church universal, how is he correcting them? When he brings correction. He brings correction into the, to that church three ways. One is the denial of power. He rebukes the churches in Revelation over the denial of power. Repent and do the first works, he told Ephesus. Ephesus' first works was power, kingdom power. Then he tells them, stop mixing with the culture. That creates Jezebel. Now, when I say culture, I'm not talking about going out in the world or going to movies and stuff like that. I'm talking about taking a worldly culture and bringing it into the mindset of the church. It's okay. I was with a church and the guys, you know, my wife's going to hate me for this, but it's, I just, you know, she's going to say, don't share it, Kevin. Holy Spirit's like, share it. And I'm like, God, don't share it, Kevin. Share it. I was with a church and the guy's like, oh, man. He's like, pray for me, man. Pray for me. I go, what's going on? He's got all this crazy demonic stuff going on. And I go, is there any witchcraft in your family? I start talking to him about this. And he's like, no, 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 no. And I go, you do drugs? I say, you smoke weed? And he's like, yeah, I still smoke weed. And, I, and he's a leader in a church. I said, hold on a second. You're in town. You're a leader in that church, and you're smoking, you're smoking weed? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, I smoke it with the leaders. I'm like, hold on a second. You're, let me get this straight. You're smoking weed with the leaders in this church? And he said, yes. He's like, it's legal. Say it with me. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's righteous. You understand? You understand? And he's wondering why he's got all this demonic crap going on because you're opening doors and you're telling them to come to you. Just a thought. Mixing with the culture. It's a mindset, Christian. It's not about action. It's not smoke, drink, or chew, or hang out with those that do. It's worldly thinking. Worldly thinking. <laughs> I'm going to back this down because I'm about to go. I'm about to just jump out of the Grand Canyon on something and I need to pull back. No, no, that's all right. Yeah, I know all y'all. I know, I know, I know, I know. We need to stop. If it matters to Jesus, Christian, it matters to you. Say it with me. It doesn't matter if I agree. Come on, it's gonna, let's do some therapy. It doesn't matter if I agree. It doesn't matter if the Lord's perspective is not mine. Say it, come on. 
my perspective needs to become the Lord's. You understand that? You understand that? We think our opinion matters. We think our opinion's God. No, it has nothing to do with your opinion. I was just sharing with Richard. We were driving to church. I said, listen, dude, when I became a Christian, there was so many things in this faith I did not agree with. I didn't agree with it because I was ignorant. I just didn't know. I'm like, well, what's wrong with that? What was wrong with this? What was it? Yeah, I was just like, duh. But you know what I did do in my ignorance is I submitted my will to his will. Whether I agreed with it or not, I chose to say, your perspectives will be my perspectives, and I will crucify every perspective of mine that is not yours. This is the gospel. This is discipleship. This isn't shiny, happy people, fairy Jesus, a man walking around in a robe sprinkling fairy dust on everybody. This is the gospel. This is the king's gospel. You are to conform unto him. He doesn't conform to you. You conform to him. You get it? I know it's strong, right? I know, I know this is strong. I mean, I say this stuff and Christians are like, because they never heard it before. I grew up on a diet of this. I grew up on a diet of this. I, I told my wife yesterday, I said, I'm tired of playing nice. I'm tired, I'm tired of playing nice. You know, we play nice. Oh, Jesus loves you. And, you know, dude, get on the page. Are you a Christian? Let's go. Give yourself to the things of God. Stop playing around. Let's go. It's not about external righteousness. It's about relationship. And this is what we're going to see. The father cuts him off. So the son comes home. Ready? This is a key point. The father comes home. He runs home. He's got nothing. The father sees him. He runs to him. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. Say this with me. The father will receive repentance, but he will not allow his sons and daughters, to lower themselves beneath the standard that he has established over them. He cut him off. Jesus is like, did I tell you you're not my son? You are my son. You've made a complete train wreck of your life, but you're still my son, and I'm still for you. You understand that? So Jesus will take the repentance, but he will never allow you. The only person that lowers the standard of value and worth on you is you. The only person that you, and, and those who you allow. You're a son, say it with me, I'm a son or a daughter on my worst day. He loves you. He is for you. He is never against you. He is always, always, always for you. This is the heart of the Father in this story. I'm for you. Doesn't mean he agrees. Doesn't mean he endorses it. He's not like, hey man, I endorse that lifestyle. Way to go. You know, he doesn't agree. But he, he doesn't accept this person, but he accepts the person. He accepts the son and the person that returns to him. He says, bring the robe, bring the ring, and bring the shoes. What is he doing? He's restoring his status. He's putting him back to the place, and he, he didn't have to do anything. In that culture, if you did this to your family, you were to be brought before the gates, before the elders. You were to publicly acknowledge your sin. I wished my father dead. I took my trust fund, I went out, I partied. How did you party? Uh, let's just say I partied. Nope, we need to know how you partied. I did this, I did this, I did this. He had to openly confess everything. And they had to beg the forgiveness of their father. And the standard was, you come back into the household under these conditions. You come back in at a lower status, and you will pay restitution to your house for what you've taken. That was the cultural standard. 
And so when Jesus is telling them that he brought him back, they would have been like, what do you mean you brought him back? What do you mean he just accepted him? You didn't take him before the gates and have him beaten. You didn't take him before the gates and do a public confession of every sin he ever committed. You didn't put him under restitution where he had to restore everything that he had screwed up. He's like, no. Again, this story is showing the part of the father. He's showing the, heart, the worldly system. He's going to show the religious system here in a second. The older brother comes out from the field. So here we have the rebellious system of this culture. Now we have the church world and the religious world, the religious perspective. Comes out from the field, walks up, sees a bunch of people at the house. He's like, who's all going on here? Smells some barbecue. He's like, hey, what's happening? It's like, oh, your son, your brother's back. Like, My brother's back? He walks up and he said, your dad threw a party. And so he walks up to the house and refuses to go inside. The religious culture is about tradition and rule keeping. That's what it's all about. Preserve the tradition and keep the rules. Preserve the tradition and keep the rules. Right? One son was righteous, the other was self-righteous. Unrighteous. Say this. One son was unrighteous, the other was self-righteous. You see the two different paradigms? And contrasted between these two viewpoints, you're going to see the kingdom heart. You're going to see the father heart. Using people. One is about using people, the other is about judging people. So the rebellious uses people, the self-righteous judges them. Can never meet the standard. Can never meet the standard. Never good enough. You got an A, well, you should have gotten an A+. Plus. You did a good job, well, let's see you do that every single time. Well, good luck with that. There's always a standard, an unmeetable standard. <laughs> One is responsible, the other is artistic. Right? Artistic people, <laughs> so they say, don't like to work. I work when I'm inspired. Right? To a responsible person, it's like, get a job, man. Do something with yourself. One is both of those. That's what's going on. So the son is angry. He's very, very angry. And he feels justified from his position. Right? He feels like, I've done everything right here. What, what, you know, and, and a lot of us, we can identify with this. I know I can identify with that. Right? I know I can identify with the prodigal. And I know I can also identify with this older brother. You know, I, I've, you know it's like... Let me, let me help you. Is there anybody here that feels they have not gotten, <laughs> Tony's like, I, I don't even know where you're going, but I'm in, right? God's told you something. There's something in your heart. You know God's told you you could have it, but you can't get it. Is anybody here? Anybody here? You don't feel, or you feel, anybody, right? You feel like God's given, like you, 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 you're like, wait a second. Why, why does this happen for them and it doesn't happen for me? Anybody like that? Yeah? This is an older brother mentality. Here's what's wrong with it, right? So this older brother, he felt very, in, 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 in any, any, any system of society, they would look at that older brother and they would say, this guy's justified to be angry. He's justified. This isn't, this isn't non-justifiable. This guy's got a point. He's angry. And the father comes to him with kingdom culture. And the father comes to him and says, listen, I understand that. You've been with me always. I know your brother's home. I know your brother's skinny. I know your brother's shot out. I know he's shoeless. We're probably going to have to put him in rehab. But he's home. But he's home. Everything else will work out in the context of relationship. This is your father. 
right? Nowhere does the father say, I approve his lifestyle. Nowhere did the father say, I approve his choices. Nowhere does the father say there's not even going to be any consequences. But he was accepted and brought into status and value and worth. There may have been some things that had to be worked out through this relationship, but that's exactly what God wants to do is work it out through relationship, not work it out through rules, right? It's not about rules. It's about relationship. And Jesus, say with me, money is not Jesus's problem. If you think Jesus has a problem with money, you need to check your mindset because you don't understand kingdom mindset at all. Money's not his problem. Relationship is. Money's not his problem. Intimacy is. And this is what he wanted. And his shot-out son had come home, and he said, we can work from relationship. And what the father is saying, as long, say it with me, as long as he would work with his father, his father would work with him. When does the relationship end? When he decides, when the boy decides, right? The father's will is to keep working with him. But he's like, look, your brother's here. And because he's here, I'm going to work with him. And as long as he lets me work with him, I'm going to work with him. What father in the world wouldn't do that, let alone our heavenly father? He's like, look, I'm, you know, if he will let me work with him, I'm going to work with him. But if he doesn't want me to work with him anymore, then there's nothing else I can do. But he's here right now. So we can begin again. It's the hope of a new beginning. This, again, is the gospel. We return to the, to the Lord, shot out, shoeless, skinny, broke, some of us in need of rehab, and the Lord will help you. He'll help you. He'll bring you into the house. He'll give you a status that you did not deserve or do not deserve, and he will work with you. Amen. You will progress. Say it with me. I will progress no further than my willingness to work with my father. You're not going anywhere unless you willfully progress with him, Right? And I'm all in. I come from a church. Back in the day, I was told to snap my heels, stand up straight. You know, I was taught. I needed that sort of militant structure around me because I was clueless. But I outgrew that. Right? So that's a formational stage that I went through, but I came into relationship. And now that I'm in relationship, and now that everything is worked out through relationship, this is how it progresses. I don't advance because I keep rules. I advance because I follow my Lord. And I follow my father, right? I do it because he says so. And because he says so, he knows what's best for me. I don't. Do you understand that? But the minute I stop working with him is the minute it all stops. That's why religious Christianity doesn't work. You become like the elder brother. So here's the elder brother's problem, right? The elder brother's problem was he was so focused on what offended him that he couldn't see what was right in front of him. He was so offended at all of the nonsense that he couldn't see what his own inheritance was. He couldn't see what was his, and he had no ability because of that offense to activate what was his. It's Christians. It's Christians. They can't see that everything's already theirs. He says, it's already yours. It's yours. But you don't know that. And you don't know how to activate it. And here's the church's big moniker, right? The church will say, in the sweet by and by, in the sweet by and by, it will all be yours. No, it's yours in the rotten here and now. Jesus said, repent for what? The kingdom, where's the kingdom? Where did he say the kingdom was? Right here. The king's dominion, the inbreaking power, the ruling reigning power of God is right here. It's within your reach. You can lay hold of it. You can grab it. Not in the sweet by and by, in the rotten here and now. 
And we think the kingdom of God is only giving our lives to Christ. It's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the inbreaking dominion and the ruling, reigning power of God in every area of my life. <laughs> What's it look like for God's power to reign in your finances? You wouldn't be poor, I can tell you that. What's it look like for the kingdom of God to rule and reign in your health? You wouldn't be sick and diseased, I can tell you that. What's it look like for the kingdom of God to rule and reign in your mind? You wouldn't be confused, I can tell you that. What's it look like? This is the kingdom. The inbreaking power of God into every sphere of our life. That is the king's dominion. And it's here. And this boy could not see it. He was only offended. He thought that his acceptance, oh, here we go. He thought his acceptance to his father was based upon keeping rules. Checking boxes. Right? I don't come to church because I check a box. Do you know why you should come to church? And you absolutely should come to church because it testifies that I love my father. That's why. You don't come to church to check a box. You come because you are loved and he loves you. And you know what else you do? You come expecting. Come with expectation and watch where he meets you. You need wisdom? Come expecting God's going to speak something to you. Yeah, but the sermon isn't about what I need, pastor. No, but the Holy Spirit's about what you need. And he can speak to you, right? We come not out of religion or out of rules. We come out of relationship, right? Moms, grandmas, let's talk to grandmas. If your mom out there, do you want your kids to come see you, right? Or do you, like if, if your daughter said, or your son, and said, every Sunday, mom, I'm going to bring the kids by. You only get to see them one time a week as a family. You get the whole family together once a week. Would that matter to you? Would that matter to you? You'd go crazy. You'd call the caterer. Mom, can you afford that? Don't worry. The family's coming together. They're coming to see. We're going to get together because my heart is for this, is for the gathering. And when they didn't come, you'd be disappointed, wouldn't you? Right? We always see church from our perspective. We only see it for us. What's in it for me? What's in it for your father? What's in it for him? Have we ever decided to see the world from his eyes? It's how we're supposed to think on earth as it is. We're supposed to see from his world, not from ours. Just a thought. He's happy to see you. You say, I'm shot out and shoeless. Doesn't matter. He's happy to see you. He's happy to see you. He's excited to see you. No negative word. The Father didn't speak a negative word. And you know why? Because love and acceptance is the basis of this kingdom. Until he could establish the boy in love and acceptance, then and only then could he lead him forward. Until you can let the Lord establish you in love and acceptance, not based upon your works, not performance-driven, until you can understand that, then and only then can you move forward. And a lot of us, and I would dare say the, the whole room, you're going to have to deal with dysfunctions if you're going to deal with that. The devil wounds us at the point of our acceptance. He wounds us at the point of our love, that we're not lovable. We believe subconsciously that we're not lovable. We believe subconsciously that we're not accepted. We believe subconsciously that we're not worthy. That's why people have a hard time receiving from the Lord, because they, they, they don't believe it in their head. They believe it in their heart, because they're wounded, or there's some lie that's been brought into them and incepted into them, and you can't will it away, Christian. You're not willing that away. You're not reading that away. Been in this game too long. You have to heal it. There are parts of our soul that have to be healing. It's the restoration of the soul. Come to Christ, find the brokenhearted. Then we start going free. Most Christians can't go free. Read Isaiah 60. 
You come to Christ and then the broken heart must be bound, must be healed. Most Christians, and then, then freedom begins, then the progression of freedom comes, and then power begins to move. If you read that as a progression, you'll see. Most Christians can never enter into freedom because they've never taken the time to heal the wounds of their heart. My past is over. It's my favorite one. My past is over. Jesus is God. All my past is done. The mantra of the church. And I'm like, then why is your past still affecting you? If your past is done, why is your past still affecting you? If a memory of 25 years ago still chokes you up, that memory's still alive and it's still affecting you. You can bury it as deep as you want to bury it, brother, but it's going to come out in some way. Trust me. The restoration of the soul is part of our sanctification, and it is, it is extremely necessary. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I'm a student of this gospel. I'm a practitioner of this gospel. I'm not a theorist. I'm trying to bring my Father's world into the lives of his people, not in pretense, we all, not an Instagram church, but a, but a people of power and purpose is what we seek, that are alive in their faith and that know their Father, not know of him, but know him, Right? And I asked the Lord, what is it that keeps us from these places? He says, people can't get past their wounds, Kevin. They deny it. They deny it. They deny it. Church doesn't want to talk about wounds because it's too messy. High five, gold star to the sister in the front row. It's too messy. So we're going to pretend. The, elef- the emperor has no clothes. You ever know? You ever, any of y'all ever, ever read that story? The guys were defrauding the emperor and they were telling him he had clothes. And all, all of the courtesans were going, he, your clothes are beautiful. And the dude's standing there in his underwear, imaginary clothes, until a little boy walked in and goes, he had, or I think it was in the parade, and he says, he has no clothes. No one would tell it like it is, except some little child. The emperor has no clothes on this. We can't advance, and there's reasons why we can't advance. You can't, you know, I've tried, believe me, I've tried. Until I started healing my own heart and started dealing with my own issues and unpacking my own dysfunctions and progressing with the Lord, I don't want to do that. Yeah, you're uncomfortable. You're vulnerable. You feel vulnerable. You feel like a child. (gasps) Where's that come from? Because it's childlike faith. Vulnerability is intimacy, Christian. It's intimacy. Vulnerability is an issue of trust. Vulnerability is an issue of value and worth. If you cannot be vulnerable before the Lord with your wounds... And you cannot be vulnerable before the Lord with, the, with all that stuff. You ain't, you're not going anywhere. It's all about relationship. That's what, this, that's what this is telling us. It all comes forth from relationship. He focused on defended. He couldn't see it. The heart of the father is to bring reconciliation. Watch what the father does. So the one is saying it's all about rebellion. The other one's saying, no, it's all about rules. And the Lord is saying it's all about inheritance and destiny. That's what the father's doing. He's trying to bring them both into inheritance. He's trying to bring them both into the party, right? One comes into the party through reconciliation. The other one comes into the party by realizing what is theirs. Huh? How many Christians cannot come into the party because they don't even know what's theirs? Well, I'm saved. Well, good for you. You're the 99th percentile of all Christians. Evangelical Christians know you're saved. What's your inheritance? Can you tell me what your inheritance is? Well, eyes not seen, nor ears heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them to love us. I don't know what my inheritance is because it's beyond my understanding. No, it can be known. You have an inheritance. Ephesians tells you that the inheritance of the saints would be revealed to you. You have an inheritance in the saints. You have an inheritance. Do you know what your destiny is? To go to heaven. That's my destiny. Hallelujah, brother. Dull. Not power. Salt without savor. 
right? Destiny and inheritance begins with reconciliation. The party begins with reconciliation. The party begins when you know you're a son and daughter on your worst day. The party begins when you know what is rightfully yours and you will settle for nothing less. You're willing to contend for the promises. You're willing to change in every way. Want, say this with me, wanting is not enough. Everybody wants it. Desire means whatever it takes. Anybody here want kingdom? You want kingdom power? No? Don't be shy. Raise your hand. You know what Peter said? What do I get for following you? And Jesus said, you'll get everything you've given me in this, and it will be rewarded for you in this life and in the world to come. Jesus didn't correct him for wanting what was his. It's yours. So let me ask the question again. Anybody want kingdom? So let me put this. Anybody want kingdom destiny? Anybody want purpose? Anybody want to live and walk in their inheritance? This is the question, isn't it? This is how it begins. We have to want these things, but wanting isn't enough. You have to do whatever it takes. Doing it whatever it takes, you ready for this? It means dismantling you. Dismantling your belief system, dismantling your traditions, dismantling your perspectives, letting the Holy Spirit completely take you apart and let him put you back together. Let him go where you don't want to go. Do what you don't want to do. People all the time, I want destiny. I want purpose. I'm like, come to church every week. Oh, I didn't know it was going to be that. I want financial freedom. I'm sorry, start giving a tithe and start giving your tithe and offering. Oh, I didn't know it was going to be that. Wanting is not enough. Everybody wants. Everybody wants destiny, but they're not willing to, to, to eliminate and, and allow the Spirit of God to undo the things in their life that is preventing them from it. I want my inheritance. This is how you activate it. Oh, I didn't know I had to do that. Right? Just a thought. I'm going to pray for you this morning. We're going to say a prayer. I wrote a prayer. Okay. You're a pastor. You should pray, right? Well, that's true. But so, do you, so should you. You're sons and daughters. You're priests. You're kings and queens. And priests unto your father. Do you know who you are? Why do you act common when the Lord has called you a king and a priest before him? Why do you settle? Why do you wallow in the mire of average when you're called to be exceptional? Why? Why do you run with turkeys when you're called to be an eagle? That's just a thought. Just a thought. So I want to pray for you. And when I want to pray, and we're going to do a little anointing, don't worry, it's painless, right? But it, say it with me. It's painless, but it's empowering. It's a transference, right? So the anointing of oil is a transference. The laying on of hands. So I know we have a lot of different Christians from different backgrounds that come through Elevate, right? First of all, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here. But I also want you to understand things that probably you don't understand from other spaces. The laying on of hands and impartation is Christianity 101. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible calls impartation and the laying on of hands an elementary principle. In other words, it's like a primary color. So what happens is an impartation, just like we did this morning when we received. That's elementary. That's preschool stuff. We should all understand it. So if you're weirded out by an impartation, you need to go back to preschool because you don't understand what an impartation is. The anointing with oil is an impartation. The oil signifies the Holy Spirit. This world is affected by that world. This world, that world, interacts with this world based upon this world's interaction with that world. The spiritual world activates when, the, when this world interacts with that one. That's how it works. God can do nothing without an agreement. 
God can do nothing without a prayer. God could do nothing without faith. The Lord can want many things, but who's believing him? Who's believing him? Who's believing him? <laughs> oh, I don't want to go there. Stop telling me that. <laughs> we have a lot of things going on in our country right now. Great victories to most believers. Some would call it sad. I would call it a victory. So whether, whatever side of the aisle you're on personally, you need to understand that the shedding of innocent blood is one of the things that God hates. And so for a curse to be lifted off of our land that has existed, you know how many years this curse has been here? Fifty. You know when it would be enacted? In January. And you know when, you know when Roe v. Wade was enacted? January. January of 73. Fifty years there's been a curse of innocent blood over our land. Read the Psalms. I understand all the different social things, and everybody's all worried about the social things. Let me challenge the Christian. Let me challenge you. Can we go to a higher level of perspective? You know what I told my wife? I feel the power on this, man. I don't even know if I can get it out without choking up. Can we go to the higher place? You know what I told my wife? And listen, so you know, abortion isn't gone. It just goes back to the states. It's just no longer federally mandated. So if California wants to abort babies and they want to abort their entire population, they're free to do so. If New York wants to abort their entire population, they're free to do so. It's just the power goes back to the states. That's all, that's all that's happening here. It's not done by federal fiat. We are the United States. We are not a federalist country. If you don't know anything about what America is, it's in a collection of states that agree upon a governmental system. And that governmental system is never to supersede the rights of the states to make their own laws. And that's what happened here. It's a federally mandated thing. And so now they gave it back to the states and say, if you want it, you can have it. If you don't want it, you don't need to have it. That's all that's happened. Right? But you know what I believe gone? You know what I'm believing? Right? Where's your faith? I told my wife, oh, God, I feel it. Mm. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> you have to have faith. Well, like, oh, well, there's going to be more kids in the welfare system and more kids in the da 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 This is how these people are reacting. Christians are reacting like that. We're going to overwhelm our social services. Do you know what you're talking about? I'm like, where's your faith? You know what I'm believing God for? That this generation, starting when this thing lifts, will be the most creative and innovative generation that has ever existed in our country. That the children that are born from out from under this curse that are not aborted, that these kids come to life and they bring an exponential creativity and an exponential power to this nation that's never been there before. That's what I'm believing God for. Where's your faith? Well, I don't know. We're going to overwhelm the welfare system. Well, you think Jesus has a problem with people with babies? You think he has a problem with provision? You think he has a problem with power? God will raise this generation up. You know how many people I know that were, that were, that were unwanted and unwan unwanted, raised in a welfare system? I just had a guy post on my, send me a message yesterday. He said, man, I, were, I grew up in a system. I got a lot of issues. But he said, I'm glad I'm alive. Thank you, mom. Right? Just a thought. His mother gave him up from the time he was a baby, but he was raised that way. Lots of people that way. I'm believing God that this generation is going to be the most innovative that the children that are born in this time, because this curse is lifted, and it is a curse. If you don't, it, we're spiritual people, Christians. We're not, we're not, we're not non-spiritual Christians. We're not traditionalists. We are kingdom people. If you know anything about blood, blood is a binding right in the spirit. That's what it is. 
That's what saves you. You're bound by what? Blood. That's right. You're bound by blood. Blood is the binding right in the spirit. And so when we shed innocent blood and we bring curse upon our land, we bind something upon ourselves. It's a binding right. It has nothing to do with social. It has nothing to do with political. This has to do with spiritual. It's a spiritual thing, Christian. You say, well, it's going to create a lot of burdens. Well, what if we believe God in spite of the burdens? What if we began to exercise faith and begin to put the currency of heaven to work? What if we did that? Just a thought. I don't know. There's my rant. Sorry. Yeah, you know, it's a little off topic. Yeah, I know. You, you're, you know, Selena's like, just say it. I'm like, yeah, let's say it. All right. You want me to say it? You want me to say it? I'm going to say it. So I'm going to do a prayer. And I'm going to do an anointing. And I'm going to pray over you. And so I want, I dare you. Say, it's not my thing. But it's Jesus' thing. All right. Lifting your hands isn't your thing. You know what I tell people? It's Jesus' things. Lift your hands. Singing isn't your thing. You know what I tell people? It's Jesus' thing. Open your mouth and sing. Anointing isn't my thing. You know what I tell people? It's Jesus' thing. It needs to become your thing. Right? Coming forward isn't my thing. It's Jesus' thing. When will Jesus' things become your things? That's a question. doesn't matter if it's your thing. It's his thing. You want to transform? Let his things become your things. <laughs> Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Let his mind be in you. Let his heart be in you. Let his ways be in you. Just a thought. So. <laughs> I know. I want you all to stand to your feet. Say the words. We're going to pray together. And then I'll call you forward. Yeah, you want to play? Go ahead. <laughs> Jeremiah's already in line. He's like, somebody's going to get anointed. Let me get up there. You always say here, we're going to say a prayer. Yeah, you can, you, if you want to, you know, we're going to form everybody. Listen, listen, do not leave this place today without all I'm going to do is I'm going to touch you on the head with a little oil and I'm going to make a declaration over you. That's all that's going to happen, right? So just <laughs> relax. It's, it's fine. Right? It's all that's going to happen. There's nothing weird, nothing crazy. We're going to say a prayer. And if Jesus is handing something out, you want it. What we want is we want a restored heart of our Father. And so we're going to make a prayer in relationship to the heart of our Father. And then I'm going to anoint you. Say this with me. Father, I turn from any and all wayward ways. I turn to you with my whole heart and with my whole life. I renounce the former things and I refuse to partner with the lingering after effects of a life I no longer own. I repent for my arrogance in thinking I could do anything without you. I renounce my ignorant attitudes as it relates to your heart and my status as your son or daughter. I choose to allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate and open my eyes. Sorry, I wrote this fast. What did I write there? Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Ah, to open my eyes and my heart <laughs> as to what is truly mine in you. Come on, I choose a kingdom lifestyle 
that enables me to enter into the fullness of my inheritance. So I'm going to anoint you. Amen. Trying to figure out how to do this. Go down the line. I'm going to anoint you with fresh acceptance and activation into your rights of inheritance. I want everybody to look at me. Okay? So I learned this trick. I wouldn't say a trick. I learned this technique from a guy. His name's Mike Hutchings. He's going to be here in October. He's a great dude. So if you see him do it, this is where I got it from. But I thought it was so powerful. I thought it was so powerful. He looked at me. I want you all to look at me. Look me right in the eye. Everybody make eye contact with me. The Lord celebrates you for the sons and daughters that you are. The Lord celebrates you for the sons and daughters that you are. The Lord celebrates you for the sons and... Look right at me. The Lord celebrates you for the sons... Look right at me. The Lord celebrates... Look right... Don't you look away. Come on. Say it. I'm worthy. You look away, I'm going to come down here. You know... Say, look right at me. I'm worthy. Look at me. Don't look right at me. Fix your eyes on me, right? And fix your eyes on Jesus, but right now, fix your eyes on me, okay? Say this, I'm worthy because he says so. Look right at me. Therefore, I am worthy. My value and worth is not determined by my opinion of myself. My value and worth is not determined by my choices, not determined by my actions, not determined by my past or my present circumstances. My value and worth is determined by Jesus, the only one, look right at me, the only one who has the right to determine my value and worth is Jesus. And he says, I'm loved on my worst day. The Bible says, say this, if my heart condemns me, God is greater than my heart and he knows all things. I'm loved because he says so. I'm worthy because he says so. This truth I choose to believe I renounce all lies to the contrary. This is my statement of record before the court of heaven. I will never again lower myself beneath the standard of value and worth that my father has established over me. I'm loved on my worst day and I'm worthy because he says so. I will never again allow another to lower me beneath the standard of value and worth that my father has established over me. I'm his son. I'm forever his son. He loves me. He accepts me. All things are worked out in relationship. I'm loved and I'm accepted and there is always hope. My father is with me in Jesus' name.